Welcome to World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, episode number 132. The Doughboy Podcast is about what happened a hundred years ago, during and after the war that changed the world. And it's also about now, how World War I is still present in our daily lives, but most importantly, the podcast is about why and how we'll never let the awareness of World War I fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. On today's show, historian Dr. Jeffrey Sammons joins us as we explore what happened to the African-American doughboys as the war ended and about the July 1919 race riots that were known as the Red Summer. As Mike Schuster wraps up his Great War Project blog, we got together to talk about him, his career, and his World War I Centennial Project. Also this week, at the 120th Veterans of Foreign Wars Conference in Orlando, Florida, we introduced the AEF Memorial Corps. Find out what it is and what it may mean to your organization. We're also launching a new digital download this week. You can get the title single from the Hello Girls Off-Broadway cast recording, Hello Girls, and we can offer it to you for free. Find out more by listening. And of course, we're going to walk through the headlines of The Dispatch, our weekly newsletter guide to World War I-related stories, news, and updates. All this week on World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Star Foundation, and the Doughboy Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. The year 1919 was rocked by racial riots and unrest in cities and even small towns as African-American World War I veterans returned home prepared to be recognized and honored for defending their country. They rightfully believed that they had earned an improvement in their status as American citizens. Instead, they were often met by mobs of angry whites who wanted the segregationist Jim Crow pre-war world restored. Let me quote the activist W.E.B. Du Bois from May 1919. This is a country to which we soldiers of democracy return. This is the fatherland for which we fought. It is our fatherland. It was right for us to fight. The faults of our country are our faults. Under similar circumstances, we would fight again. But by the God in heaven... We are cowards and jackasses if now that the war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. We return from fighting and we return fighting. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States of America, or know the reason why. (laughs) 
to explore what has come to be known as the Red Summer of 1919, we're joined by historian Dr. Jeffrey Sammons, a member of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission's Historical Advisory Board, and whose area of research and interest include African American history and military history. Dr. Sammons is also supporting the Valor Medals Review Initiative that's addressing potential World War I Congressional Valor Medal awardees that may have been passed by because of institutional racism of the time. Dr. Sammons, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you, Theo. Dr. Sammons, the last time that you joined us on our show, it was in February of 2018, we spoke about the very diverse nature of the Doughboys being trained and sent to France. Now they're coming home. Can you remind our audience of the segregationist policies in our 1919 military? Well, the units of the 92nd and 93rd Divisions were almost entirely black with the exception of white officers. There's an interesting irony here that we think of Reconstruction as this very racially progressive time in American history. But the segregated army actually began in Reconstruction in 1866. They had anticipated having some six units. It ended up being four, the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry. Matthew Steele, who was a graduate of West Point, a native of Alabama, actually said that this was as bad a form of Jim Crow as any that could be found in Alabama or Mississippi. And of course, that was the basis for continuing segregation into and through World War I and actually through World War II. And the military was not integrated on the ground until the Korean War in around 1951, despite the executive order by Harry Truman in 48 that was starting the integration process. Many people do not know the origins of the segregated army and institutionalized racism at that point in time, right at the beginning, basically, of radical reconstruction. I know that people think of the Harlem Hellfighters, more accurately the Harlem Rattlers, when they think about African-American service in World War I, but there were major units from the Midwest and other areas as well, right? Yes, there were units and also members of the 369th that had soldiers coming from Texas, Virginia, etc. And of course, the 370th was from Illinois. It had been the 8th Illinois before becoming a part of this 93rd Provisional Division. So there's an example of a Midwest unit in World War One. It too would pick up replacement soldiers from all across the country. One of the things we also have to recognize is that there were only about 40,000 black combatants during World War I. So most of the 400,000 blacks who were in the American army in World War I were in service labor units. And many of those were held in basically in work camps on this side of the Atlantic. So they weren't even overseas. And it's my understanding that the conditions in these work camps were horrendous. So that's a story that needs more telling as well. So now these men come home. What happens when they get home? You know, in New York, there's a memorable parade in which the 369th Regiment marched alone. And what's really interesting about that parade is that many said that this was a day in which racism ceased to exist in New York City. Of course, there were many whites who were witnesses to the parade and cheering these men on. And I would say that the spectators probably 
had more enlightened views than the press, but the press was already demonstrating their concern with whether these men would go back to the status quo ante. Would they accept a segregated America after they had seen something different in their treatment in Europe? But the objective is to keep these men in the place that they were before the war. And of course, soldiers become targets of individual and mass violence because they're seen as a threat to the established social order. Now we get to the summer of 1919 and riots start and then grow and expand. What happened over the summer? Blacks become sort of internal enemies, that they're threatening the established order just as anarchists would or communists would. And of course, one of the prime sites of the violence in summer of 1919 was in Chicago. The catalyst was an incident in which these young black men were swimming in an area that was designated as white. One of them was hit by a stone thrown by this white man. This child died. But there had already been tension because of the Great Migration in which blacks had come from the south to the north to find work and also to escape the racial oppression in the south. There were issues of labor. Blacks were used as strike breakers against unions, which didn't allow them to be members. There was residential tensions and blacks moving into white neighborhoods. So with all these forces coming together, we have the perfect storm. How big was not only the destruction, but the loss of life during all this? Well, I know in Chicago, I think 38 blacks died and maybe in the teens for whites, which was unusual because most of these riots were very one-sided in terms of the loss of black life versus white life. But that riot, according to William Tuttle, who wrote a book called Race Riot about the Chicago riot, said it was what he considered to be the ideal riot or the ecological riot in which there was basically blacks not allowing themselves to be massacred. I don't have the numbers offhand, but I think it was well over 200 blacks who died in the riots of 1919. And of course, there would be one later that is directly connected to World War One in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, in which black soldiers defended the black community against the marauders in the white community. What was the federal government position in all this? Well, you know, the control of the riots was basically up to the governor. There was no federalization of the National Guard by the federal government to take charge there. Woodrow Wilson certainly was no friend of blacks before the war or post-war, so he wasn't going to become involved. And in fact, we know that he basically allowed the execution of some 13 black soldiers in the riot of Houston, Texas that happened in 1917. And of course, that was a sort of marker of what happens when you put guns in black hands and also train them to be killers. Let's be frank about it. So there's a long history of the federal government either being complicit or abdicating its responsibility in terms of protecting black citizens. From the W.E.B. Du Bois quote that I read in the intro, clearly there is an unwavering demand for recognition in civil rights 
from all of this, what happens next? Does it get suppressed again or what happens? That's a really important question because many people believe that World War I was a total disappointment for blacks because they had believed that they would actually gain the citizenship they deserve by their service and sacrifice and heroism in World War I. That did not happen clearly, but that doesn't mean it was a total loss. And in fact, far from it, because here's what I always tell my students. Don't be so concerned about the impact of what blacks do on whites. Be concerned about the impact of what blacks do upon themselves. But blacks persevered and they built upon what had happened in World War I. They knew, despite the fact that no black had received the Medal of Honor during the war, that many had received other kinds of honors, and especially French ones, which demonstrated their capacity to both fight and, in some instances, to lead. Well, Dr. Sammons, a last question, a sort of a summary. What do you think are the important key ideas here? What should our listeners take away and remember about this veteran homecoming in the Red Summer? Well, (laughs) they should take away that we must actually pay very close attention to the experience of blacks in the military and in times of war and peace. But we haven't put the black military experience on the level with the civil rights movement or even with education or blacks in politics. And I don't think there's an institution that is more important to the black freedom struggle than the military and to questions of segregation and discrimination, but also in terms of demonstration of capacity and to be able to, as William Pickens put it, a famous NAACP activist and writer, that World War I allowed blacks to perform on a world stage and to demonstrate what they were capable of doing in ways that nothing else could. That's a wonderful answer, Dr. Sammons. I want to thank you for joining us again. It's always great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Theo. Take care. Noted historian Dr. Jeffrey Sammons has focused his area of research and study to include African-American history, military history, and sports history. He's also supporting the Valor Medals Review Initiative that's addressing potential World War I Congressional Valor Medal awardees that may have been passed by because of institutional racism of the time. We have links for you in the podcast notes about the Red Summer and some of Dr. Salmon's work. That's our story for 100 years ago this week. Let's fast forward back to the present. During this part of the podcast, we explore how World War I has been and is being remembered and commemorated in the present. For many years, I listened to Mike Schuster on National Public Radio. Mike was the correspondent that they would send to Tehran, Islamabad, Berlin, Moscow, Israel, to the West Bank. He witnessed the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. He and his team won a Peabody Award for their coverage of 9-11. Mike produced award-winning coverage of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and he reported on armed conflicts in Georgia and other former republics of the Soviet Union. 
Mike spoke with the men and the women on the street, the soldiers in the field, and with the heads of state with equal ease. So it's been my privilege to have Mike Schuster as a regular segment host on this podcast from the time that we launched it in the beginning of 1917, all the way through the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Now, Mike is wrapping up his Great War Project blog, and sadly, we won't be graced with his posts going forward. We couldn't just stop without talking about it, so Mike and I sat down together, virtually of course, and had a wonderful chat about his career, his project, and our work together over these past couple of years. Mike, our listeners know and love you for your weekly segments on the podcast, but a lot of them and I were fans of yours on NPR long before you came on the show. Can you talk a little bit about those radio days? Well, I worked for NPR for 30 years, starting in the early 1980s, and I became a foreign correspondent in the late 80s. And it was during that time that I got interested in the Great War and its effect on us today. How did that happen? How did you get interested? Well, it just turned out, you may remember that in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell and all sorts of changes were taking place in Europe and the Middle East as well. And the way it affected me initially is that I was sent out not knowing much about World War I or the details of these experiences. As a result, year after year, I was called upon to make understood historical issues that I had no understanding of, many of them connected to World War I. You did a lot of reporting for the Middle East as well, right? Yes, I did. And a lot of the time, the story, although taking place in contemporary times, the story always fell back to World War I. <laughs> That's interesting. And that took place over and over and over again for many years. Gradually, bit by bit, I learned about World War I. I had to make sense out of it and its effect on current issues today. And so when I finished with NPR, it just happened to coincide with the 100th anniversary of World War I and issues connected to World War I. And so it was then after I left NPR that I began to, I guess you could say, research World War I in earnest. Well, I know in the early days when the commission first got started, you and I had lunch in Venice, California, and you'd wanted to do a radio show then. But of course, the commission started, we literally had zero dollars. And so it wasn't until years later that we finally were able to produce a podcast. And in the meantime, you decided to produce your blog. Can you tell us how that got started? After these 30 years of covering foreign assignments, I had decided to leave NPR and look for the next stage in my life. And all of a sudden, I realized I was sitting at a cafe once with an editor from NPR, and I realized, hey, this is coming up on the 100th anniversary of World War I. We realized, oh, we could probably raise some money for a radio program, and I hoped it would get people interested to support us and go further and create something for the public radio world. I started reading books about World War I, and my friends from NPR and former correspondents from NPR were interested in doing this as well. So we just sort of began to think about it, talk about it. I began reading books, and I haven't stopped yet. Little did you know at the time when you were getting going that most of the response in the world would be, World War what? Yeah, right. Well... It's true, because the only way people knew about World War I was because 
it had to be an inference to World War II. I think when you were talking about in that period of time, I was doing research looking at how many times World War I was being looked at on the web, you know, how many times the terms were being searched, how many articles were being written. And it was a dead calm sea out there in America. It's true. And it was important for the United States and people, Americans, to understand World War I because it was having an effect. There was a clear effect that most Americans weren't aware of. We came to the conclusion this was important, that we needed to do something to alert people to this 100-year anniversaries of events connected to World War I. I think it was like in January of 2014 is when your first post came out. And then by August 2014, when World War I actually happened and got going, you settled down to you posting most of the content. What were the early days like? I didn't want it to be only me. The blog evolved, and I was trying to raise enough money to go to create a series of specials on World War One that would run on public radio and that would also turn into a blog. And I think I realized at the time that a blog would be the way to go because it didn't have to fit into the schedule of the airing of these programs. What a blog does is it lets you basically create a radio program, but run at any time. It didn't have to fit into the station schedules or anything like that. Well, you don't need any permission. That's right. But I didn't quite understand that at the beginning, because being a radio guy and having created radio programs, it was natural to think, well, that's what I should do. I should talk to a number of radio stations and see if they were interested. And they were. And we went to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting as well. But it didn't happen fast. It should have happened fast, and it didn't happen fast. And so eventually, I realized that the idea would be to create a website and then work a blog off of that, and you could publish anytime, anywhere, any way you want. So it shifted gradually, at least in the beginning, to something much more akin to what we've been doing since that time. You ultimately settled down into being the curator and the main author. How did you come up with and select the stories or the editorial that you went? Was it all 100-year-ago events, or how did you select the editorial that you'd be covering? I wanted it to be 100-year-old events, but it was also true that this called upon my skills as a reporter, which I had been developing and working with for decades. And so as I moved through the chronology of World War I, I relied on my own journalistic judgment to find and tell the stories that were good stories, that were neat stories sometimes, that were tragic stories sometimes. But there was so much to choose from, it felt to me to create short, powerful little stories out of the unbelievably complex tapestry of that war. So I relied on my journalistic skills as the short answer. We'll call it forensic journalism. <laughs> How about that? And the other thing that you're saying, Mike, that is completely spot on, and we discovered that as the commission and certainly as the podcast, is it's not about reporting what happened. It's the stories. And that's one of the things I loved about your post. As you join the podcast, it's always about telling stories, not about telling history. And World War I has an endless supply of extraordinary, extraordinary stories to tell. Extraordinary, unbelievable, shocking. <laughs> Wholly necessary for people to begin to comprehend. I think America rediscovered World War I in a very profound way. Absolutely true, I think. I mean, you see it more than I'd see it because my role is limited. But I think that taken all told, you've had a lot of influence on this corner of the history of our nation. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, and doing the blog, what were some of the challenges, do you think? 
it was up to me to find the story. And the literature on this war is enormous. And I just drew on their expertise. I never figured myself to be an expert on this war. But what I could do well was tease out the stories, as you mentioned earlier. When we started approaching April of 1917, a guy we both know that's the executive director of the commission, Dan Dayton, turned to me and said, look, we've been doing these telephone calls that were just kind of letting state organizations and commissioners sort of talk about what we were doing for the commemoration. But he said, you know, it's time to do something public facing, you know, and I went, Dan, there's not a chance we can do television. It's way too expensive. But how about a podcast? We launched the idea for a podcast in February of 2017, and I think you joined us almost instantly. The way it got to me is you folks wanted something about the history. And I guess in your meetings and your discussions, you realized you had a ready-made source of history stories for this war. And so it came to me, and I'm really glad that it did. Well, Mike, I want to say what a pleasure and an honor it's been to be working with you over these past few years. And I speak for a lot of people when I say thank you for all that you've done for the centennial of World War I. A thank you and deep appreciation from the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, from our listeners, and from me personally. If you'd like to send a message to Mike, you can send it to us at email address podcast at worldwaronecentennial.org. We put the email address and a link to Mike's website in the podcast notes. For a century in the making, the story of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., we want to announce something that launched this past weekend. Here is an excerpt from a press release. Dateline, Friday, July 19, 2019. Headline. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission announces the AEF Memorial Corps, new peer program to recognize fundraising support for World War I veteran commemorations. The story goes on to explain that a lot of veteran, historical, and patriotic organizations have been holding fundraisers on behalf of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., now, this is happening more and more on an ad hoc basis. In fact, we reported one story on last week's podcast about a DAR chapter that ran a fundraiser for the memorial. Now, this is really a wonderful thing. So we sat down a while ago to see how we might be able to not only encourage, but support groups that want to, as we think of it, keep faith with the Doughboys and all veterans of World War I. You see, with no living veterans... Their remembrance is in our hands, that being those of us who believe passionately that no American veteran should ever be forgotten and are dedicated to keeping their story alive for generations to come. Well, that's what the new memorial in Washington, D.C. is all about. So we created the AEF Memorial Corps. AEF, of course, stands for the U.S. Army that deployed to Europe 100 years ago, the American Expeditionary Forces. Here's how our executive director, Dan Dayton, put it. Quote, The AEF Memorial Corps has been created to give appropriate recognition to all organizations around the country and even internationally who want to help keep faith with the Doughboys by contributing to the building and the ongoing support of the new National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Unquote. We're launching the program this week at the 120th Veterans of Foreign Wars Conference in Orlando, Florida, where we're inducting the VFW itself and a dozen VFW posts who've already raised money for the project into the AEF Memorial Corps. 
We'll have pictures and stories for you next week. In Commission News. The Doughboy Foundation, the fundraising arm for the idea of keeping faith with World War I veterans, is focused on supporting the World War I community of interests. And one of the ways is with high-quality, high-value, free digital downloads. This past June, we introduced the free 100-page World War I Genealogy Research Guide by Deborah Dudek which has been and continues to be a huge success. Thousands and thousands of you have downloaded this amazing and free resource and are using it as a roadmap to search out your own World War I heritage. Well, I'm here to announce a wonderful new digital download just to fan the spark of World War I interest. Here's the setup. If you're a regular listener, you know about the Hello Girls. You know, the pioneering U.S. Army telephone operators who went to France to handle telephone communications for World War I. Their story of service and struggle for recognition as veterans has been told by Elizabeth Cobb's great book, Jim Therese's wonderful documentary, U.S. congressional bills in the House and the Senate, and Peter Mills and Kara Reichel's off-Broadway musical. I'm sure we've had at least a half dozen Hello Girl segments on the show. Well, the last time Peter and Kara were on, we talked about their new cast recording of the Hello Girls musical. Well, after that episode, we got together with them and their record company, Broadway Records, and we started talking about you, our listeners, our dispatch newsletter readers, our state commemoration partners, the whole World War I community of interest, and what an incredible responsive audience you are. And something quite wonderful happened. The record company and the musical production company agreed to let us take the album title cut, Hello Girls, and let you download it for free. When everything falls through and they're saying They're so excited about the feedback from the people who've listened to the album that they figured that if our community of interest got to listen to the title cut, well, of course you go buy the album. And I think they're right. The album is more than just the music. There's enough spoken story from the show in it that listening to the album is really the whole Hello Girl story in musical form. So hurry up and get your copy of the single and take a listen to it for yourself. It's really wonderful. The single is a delight, and the album is a great ride for your ears and soul. Ready for the link? It's the regular old www.cc.org forward slash hello, all lowercase. That's www.cc.org forward slash hello. And of course, we have a link to the single download page in the podcast notes. And that brings us to articles and posts, where we select stories that you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. The Dispatch points to online articles with summary paragraphs and links, providing a rich resource to World War I news and activities. This week, our first two stories were written and published by two incredible young people who interned at the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission this summer. Headline, 
Tompkins County, New York, and Cornell University had outsized World War I roles. What could this rural county have done to contribute to World War I efforts? Well, while spending time as an intern at the United States World War I Centennial Commission this summer, Katie Hammer decided to answer this very question. Quote, While I never paid much attention to the history of Tompkins County, besides what I knew from family stories, said Katie, who decided to use draft cards from two of her relatives as jumping-off points, what I found amazed me. Another intern publication. Headline. Honoring Americans who served in Canadian forces during World War I. It wasn't until April of 1917 that the United States entered the First World War. Despite America's delayed entry into the war, young Americans had gone north of the border to Canada to join the war effort. Canada joined the war in August of 1914 as part of the British Empire, and as such began to mobilize young troops and send them overseas. U.S. World War I Centennial Commission intern Josh Baker noted that after the war ended, quote, there needed to be a special way in which the Canadian government could thank all of those young Americans who fought with Canadian units during the First World War. The result of that led to the Canadian Cross of Sacrifice that's located at Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Okay, now for you teachers. Headline, National History Day's new World War I seminar is a scholarship opportunity. National History Day, NHD, is excited to be offering scholarships for our World War I webinar series this fall, Legacies of World War I. The Autumn World War I webinar series is offering free tuition and credit for two teachers from every NHD affiliate. Through the program, teachers can earn a Certificate of Professional Development Hours or three Graduate Extension Credit Units from the University of San Diego. But hurry, applications for scholarships are only going to be accepted through July 30th, coming up soon. Albany marks Sergeant Henry Johnson Day. City officials of Albany, New York, observed the third Henry Johnson Day last month. The day was established to honor World War I hero Sergeant Henry Johnson on the 102nd anniversary of his enlistment. The Albany Man was part of the all-black 369th Infantry Regiment, and his actions in May of 1918 posthumously earned him the Medal of Honor. It was President Barack Obama that bestowed the highest military honor an American soldier can receive on Johnson in a White House ceremony on June 2, 2015. And here's one of my favorites of the week. Maryland World War I Ghost Fleet Cemetery, now a National Marine Sanctuary. An area in Maryland that's home to abandoned World War I-era steamships has been designated a new National Marine Sanctuary. The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, the State of Maryland, and Charles County announced the Mallows Bay Potomac River National Marine Sanctuary on Monday. Mallows Bay is known for its, quote, ghost fleet because of its partially submerged remains of more than a hundred wooden steamships that were built in response to the shipping needs of World War I. Now, we plan to follow this one up with a podcast segment really soon. And our last story this week, new podcast series focuses on the World War I Paris peace process from University College London. 
University College London Institute of Education, working with Chrome Radio, and our show friends and multi-time guests Sir Hugh Strawn and Catriona Oliphant, along with Simon Bendry, have begun working on, quote, Peacemaking in Paris, a podcast series. It's bound to be really good. Access the full-length versions of all these wonderful stories and more through the summary paragraphs and links that you'll find in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's our short and easy guide to lots of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.cc.org forward slash subscribe, all lowercase. Or, of course, you can follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 132 of World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, crew, and supporters, including Jeffrey Sammons, historian, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, and a wonderful friend of the Centennial. Thanks to Juliet Kowal, the line producer, Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team, Dave Kramer for his research and writing, J.L. Michaud for research and web support, and I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. The Commission's programs have been to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. They have brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and the public. They've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes around the country, and they're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other sponsors, the Star Foundation and the Doughboy Foundation. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org forward slash CN. That's Charlie Nancy. You'll find World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy podcast, in all the places that you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, or Radio On Demand, or even YouTube, asking Siri, or using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget, you can help keep the story alive for America by contributing to the memorial, which stands to tell the story for generations to come. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 91999. You can make a contribution of any size. Hello, girls. Well, what do you know, girls? Sent from the greatest ever nation where they grow, girls. So when we call from far-flung foreign locales, we'll have our own bell phone crew. We're talking well-bred, corn-fed American gals who can voulez the voo and say how do you do to hello, girls. We need you so, girls. We should have had you here a half a year ago, girls. The greatest. Thank you for listening. So long. <laughs>